Hey, welcome back to Therapy Insiders. Thanks for tuning in. Another fun episode for you. We're sticking with the fitness, treatment, some mindset theme here. Um, Our guest on this episode is Dr. Craig Liebenson. And Craig does a lot of cool stuff. And I'm sure you've taken some of his courses. You've seen stuff on social media. And we really delve into some topics that I think a lot of you hear and most likely discuss within your your own groups and social media stuff like what is functional how to approach certain conversations with patients uh, mindset topics and and i think it's it's a good conversation and and we go into some some depth on them about how do we accurately tell people about pain how do we accurately tell people what's going on with them without necessarily going into a, a biomedical model that a lot of us are trying to move away from in, in some regards. And Craig does a really good job because he, he's been practicing for a long time and he has uh, contemporaries such as Dr. Stu McGill. And it, it's really cool to hear his stories and his evolution. And we, we really go into that, the, the, the evolution of our mindset as practitioners that, that we have gone through and that we've have made mistakes and we've changed because we really have to so enjoy the podcast let us know what you think and check out updoc media for more Welcome back to Therapy Insiders Podcast. Dr. Gene Shirakabrad here with Dr. Urson Religioso. Urs, how's it going? I'm well. How about you, Gene? Pretty good. So we are a few episodes into the latest season here in 2017, and we've uh, we, we've had a really warm, pretty positive reception to the episodes, aside from the first episode uh, where we went on a 15-minute uh, opening rant essentially of nothingness uh so people gave me a lot of shit for that opening but aside from that the overall overall episodes have been have been really good because they've been focused very much on strength and conditioning fitness and kind of that integration and in physical therapy and, and and rehab so people people really like talking about that because it seems like it's very uh very un, i don't know if it's underdeveloped I don't, I, don't, I don't even know how to describe that yet I wouldn't say it's necessarily underdeveloped. I would just say that PTs don't use strengthening or loading to the best of their ability. I would say they think their patients patients are a bit more fragile than they really are. True, and we're kind of in the vacuum because we are on social media so much and we're surrounded by some of the best of the best, at least some of the most prolific uh, coaches, strength and conditioning, and hybrid, you know, quote unquote hybrid coaches, which are physios, chiros, slash coaches. So we, we see it so much that maybe maybe we are kind of have that vacuum effect that we think there's more of it than there is, but we really know that's not the truth. Right. In a way, um, if you just hang out in your own echo chamber on social media and even teaching courses, I mean, like the people who attend my courses, technically they, the majority of them are a bit more up to date than the the average clinician i would say so sometimes just by hanging out with the same circles day in and day out you you might think the profession is a bit better than it really is i don't know or maybe you think it's a bit worse than it really is it depends on who you're hanging out with 
Absolutely. And obviously we focus a lot on, on the physical therapy world because both of us are physical therapists. Joe is a physical therapist. And that's, that's, that's been our, our, our community, our people, but it, it's really bigger than just physical therapy. And it, it kind of has to be bigger than physical therapy to integrate movement and health and strength and conditioning and everything that we're talking about. It has to go beyond that. And obviously our, our cousin profession, which, um, which we bicker with a good bit is the, the chiropractic uh, profession. Um, and, and they have a lot to offer. And I think they also like us in some regards ha- have their own black eyes with certain things, but there, there's a lot, a, a lot of really cool people doing really cool things. And one of them is our guest. So please do the honors. Urs. Yeah. Well, luckily it's funny. That you, <clears throat> it's funny that you said cousin profession. I mean, I guess it depends on uh, how close you are with that family, but I would say, luckily, I think he's a drunk uncle, right? I right, mean. right. I think, uh, I think our guest is, is the third, only the third chiropractor we've had on Therapy Insiders. Uh, Dr. Craig Liebenson is the director of LA Spine and Sports. Uh, he's written several uh, best-selling books, and the latest would be the Functional Training Handbook, which I highly recommend. Uh, he developed a clinical audit process, which is uh, his kind of take on testing and retesting, and uh Surprisingly, also the first chiropractic member of the McKenzie Institute. I remember when I found out that the uh, McKenzie Institute had a chiropractor on their board of directors. I was like, "What?" Because that was so it was a while ago, and and back then it was before I think there was a bit more integration in our professions and and some friendliness. And I think that uh, Craig has a lot to do with that because he also helped start up the R2P movement in several Cairo schools, which basically teaches Cairo's uh, rehab and uh, performance and, and movement and not just traditional straight chiropractic. So welcome to Therapy Insiders, Dr. Liebenson. Wow. Thank you, Urs. I appreciate it. Yeah. Being really nice to meet both of you. Yeah. Likewise. Well, it, it's we're recording this to give our listeners a little bit of perspective. We're recording this earlier than usual. We usually record our podcast um, at nighttime. So usually somebody is drinking something on the podcast. Um, so right now it's noon here on the East Coast. You're on the West Coast. So it's a lot earlier. So there, there's, I hope, I hope there is no drinking involved yet. Otherwise, we're going to have a whole different conversation. All right. I'll put the tequila away. <laughs> it is afternoon. Well, if it's already out. It's, it's only nine in the morning here, but what the heck? <laughs> Well, like I was telling Erson the the other day, I am like the drunk cousin. Yeah, exactly. Like, but if you wake if you wake up at like five a.m. and it's still nighttime outside, it's kind of like dark, right? So, I mean, you can still drink; it's fine. It's still dark. Um, so, so great! It, it's awesome to have you on the podcast. Um, obviously, I, I know Erson and I have followed your stuff a lot, and we're not the only ones. Obviously, you you have you put out really cool stuff uh, on social media on Facebook. And I've loved seeing it. And, and I've been wanting to ask you because you integrate the the functional aspects. And, and this question keeps coming up and we, we keep going back and forth. And we kind of ask a lot of people that use this term is what is what is functional? How do you define it? And more importantly, how is it relevant and integrated into every day and in, in your teachings? Good, good question. Um, I know that Gray Cook has... Um, made a very, very uh, fundamental point that you can't define function. Um, he likens it to pornography. He says we kind of know what it is, but we can't define it. And as much as I adore Gray, 
and I'm enthralled every time I'm in the room listening to him speak, um, I couldn't disagree more. Um, in a nutshell, what I learned from Dr. Carol Levitt and Professor Vladimir Yanda is the same message that Professor McGill echoes, namely that uh, uh, it depends upon the individual. And I feel very strongly that what's missing is in all of this scalability that has occurred because of uh, social media and advertising and marketing in, our, in both of our fields and in the strength conditioning fitness fields as well. Um, I think that uh, we've found the lowest common denominator is being promoted. And unfortunately, what I learned is a completely different frequency. Um, I feel a lot of resonance with Professor McGill's message when he says it depends. And with respect to function, specifically what I mean is you got to take a history. You need to know the, the KPIs, the key performance indicators. So function is that which is purposeful for the individual. That's my definition. Um, and every person is different. Every person has a different demand, has a different history has more or less tread off their tires, has different fears, worries, concerns. And then each person has different capacity or competencies in order to safely um, secure those demands that are important to them. And when there's a gap between their uh, current capacity and their required capacity for their demands, that's our job to identify and that's the, the painless dysfunction in the FMS. That's the faulty movement pattern from Professor Yonda. Um, and we have to know, we have to know for each person what it is we're looking for. And I'm not looking for what's on the MRI. I'm not looking for uh, where their pain is uh, as much as I'm looking for why they have their pain. And you mentioned something. So, yeah. Sorry, sorry, I cut you off. You mentioned something before we get too far away from it. Something you are the first person to to say this in a fitness regarded uh, term or in, in a fitness regarded realm, which is KPIs, because we talk about that a good bit because we talk a lot of business. I don't, I haven't heard anybody yet, and we've interviewed over a hundred people talk about KPIs in, in in regards to the clinical world. Can can you kind of? Talk about that a little bit, how you define your KPIs and, and how, because that's, that's tracking metrics. That, that, that's science, right? That, that's objective data. H how does that, how is that part of your practice and how does that tie into to functional per person? Well, for me, KPIs are something that um, I'm tuned into from Dan Path at Altus. And Dan is uh, very well known as one of the top sprint jump coaches in the world. Um, he speaks the same language as Dr. Levitt uh, that uh, we need to look at every single person's demands and take a telescope view and identify through watching them practice and watching them perform uh, what their capacity shortfalls are. And for him, the KPIs are their past injury history, the sport that they perform, uh, their chronological age, your estimate of whether there's a mismatch between their biological and their chronological age because they have a lot of tread off their tires, 
all of those sorts of, of, of metrics. And it's an individualization process. So this is truly patient-centered or athlete-centered care or management with uh, uh, breaking with tradition of the silo care that, that is, is rampant in our fields. How do you rectify or kind of combine the, the movement to seeing the patient as an individual versus the, the one screen that fits everything? You know, because there's, there's a lot of strong opinions on either, on both sides, and there are, there are a lot of those out there who basically say you can't predict injury, you can't really predict where pain is coming from, with a, a, there's no one movement screen that kind of captures all individuals. And, you know, I, I kind of agree with what Stu says about this is, is you know, I can't teach my, uh, my participants in my courses how to be me because I have much more, I can't teach like the exact thing that's going on in my brain. You know, I can't teach my exact examination, but at the same point, I, I think that if you don't have something to fall back on that's reproducible, then, it's not necessarily efficient to to do an, a completely individualized screen on every person because common things happen commonly. What, what do you think about that? Well, there's a lot in there, Erson. Right, <laughs> um, go. That, Maybe you should have had that tequila. That's that's pregnant with a lot of uh, a lot of uh, import. Well, first of all, with respect to Stu, Stu and I have been um, close collaborators. Uh, going back to the early 90s. And at Stanford, when, um, uh, when we were discussing uh, the FMS, Stu pointed out a lot of the research. Um, and Gray was extremely um, uh, uh, wise and graceful uh, in that he never defended the FMS at Stanford. He basically said he was honored that the scientific community had put so much uh, emphasis on studying his baby. He never thought it would grow to be what it was. And when I watch Gray work, Gray is actually more in line with what you're suggesting, Urson, which is that there isn't uh, this scalable test that's the same for everybody, that it does depend, as Stu famously said at Stanford. And, and for Gray, he goes back to talking about Gladwell and the blink moment. And when Gray sees somebody, he, 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 he talks to them. He takes a history. And then he's off. He goes. And, and for Stu, in his courses, it's very much the same thing. He's telling people, don't emulate this case. Learn these principles. Because this is a master class. You're going to learn the methods. You're going to study my books, my DVDs, blah, blah, blah. What I'm going to show you when we're together is how I play jazz, how I improvise, how I use empathy to really hear people's cry and understand what their triggers are so that I can find out what the capacity shortfall is that I have to shore up. So scalability is for, um, is for the beginner, as Stu says. And right. everybody should learn the FMS. Everybody should learn uh, the SFMA if they're a clinician. Uh, when I was learning, people were learning Yonda's tests. Um, but I think that, that the crucial thing is to be a collector of all ways to screen 
function and dysfunction. And like Mike Boyle and others say, we should be able to understand the common denominators, the buckets, if you will, for activity, for, for sport, for life. And I think that's where the chiropractic uh, and physical therapy uh, clinicians really can learn something from not just the strength coaches, but the old-time lifters. Because the old-time lifters, they had the buckets for what were the main components of, of function. John Rusin talks about these. He has, it, has that on a t-shirt. Squat, hinge, lunge, carry, push, pull. It's not rocket science. These things are out there. And so as much as possible, I start with a very detailed history. My consultation is way too long to be scalable. It's not as long as Stu's, but, but Stu's not going to see a person a second time. I'm going to see a person a second and third and fourth time. So, but I'm spending almost two hours on my initial evaluation to hear their cry, to hear their goal, to hear their concern, to hear what they've been told. Because I, I'm a deprogrammer. Most people are, are held hostage by mythology. Right. A good portion of my eval, people are always surprised if they see me uh, in mentoring session or if I do it in a live live case in a seminar that I spend like 45 minutes of just education and as you call it deprogramming, I call it de-education because they have a lot of misconceptions about what is causing their pain or even what pain is. And uh, yeah, I think that, you know, when I first uh, heard Stu, a lot of Stu's answers, I thought, oh, you know, I don't know so necessarily know if I agree with it, but the more and more I just really got into the dug into the research. Cause I think I just started getting into the FMS and SFMA, uh, so I didn't necessarily like the answers. But yeah, I mean, the, you know, the more and more I teach, the more every time people ask me a question, I just say yes. <laughs> it's because it, it's really hard to say that they're, they're always asking about what about this, what about this, will this work, will this work, and usually the answer is either yes or it depends, and I think they, they can both be used uh, in many cases. Well, I think it depends on what, what matters to them. And so I, I always want to identify what the activities are that they participate in and what are the activities that they used to participate in that, A, they've either given up because um, uh, they have pain with those activities or be because they, they perceive that they should stop those activities because they think that those activities are dangerous. Um, but, but getting back to this, the, the scalable question, Spina uh, is, is becoming clearer and clearer on this also, that, that we need to identify the context and then, uh, then use our assessment uh, sense and skills and methods um, uh, to screen what's relevant for the individual rather than following a standardized exam. But again, like, like Stu says, this is, uh, this is the jazz. This is the artistry. Before you're an artist, you have to learn the craft. And there's no better way than to learn the craft than from, from, from people like Gray Cook. That, that's the beginning point. So I think that, that both are right. It just depends upon where you're at on the journey. Right. If you know an assessment and a technique, you know an assessment and a technique. But if you understand concepts, then you know hundreds of assessments and hundreds of techniques. Exactly. 
So, so, so you know, learn as many skills as you can so that you can master the art. What I find is a lot of the, the young practitioners, um, naturally, uh, for security's sake, uh, they put too much stock in the things that they've already learned. And I think that there's uh, a danger in some of the more branded techniques out there for people to, to dive deep down rabbit holes. Um, and the ideas that we now know from, from uh, long-term athletic development about the benefits of early sampling and late specialization as opposed to early specialization, I think they apply to learning in general and in our field specifically where a lot of, a lot of people are like heavy into PRI or DNS. And I think that this is uh, unfortunate. Uh, when I talk to people who've done seven DNS courses and they've never been to see Stu, I'm thinking that, that uh, this, is, this is a cognitive dissonance. So when um, you mentioned that some of the fundamental movements, some of the fundamental principles, it's not rocket science, but yet a lot of them are still not practiced regularly and not applied regularly. Some of the exercises, squats, deadlifts, fundamental movements, training hip hinge, pushing, pulling, uh, training in all planes, all of that stuff. It, it still seems to be a, a concern and, and a deficit in, in a lot of programs and a lot of clinics. Where, where is that disconnect happening? Why is it happening? How can we bridge that gap and make sure it's integrated more and more often and more and more practice? I think people just need to read Gray Cook's book. I mean, Simple as that? His first pages just nail it. You know, the idea about parts versus patterns, uh, the legacy of thinking about uh, trying to find isolated impairments, such as range of motion or strength deficits, and how um, that takes us away from looking at the fundamental patterns. There are fundamental patterns. Um, Yonda uh, tuned us into these, these, these patterns, but of course, our, our ability to see what they are has evolved and sharpened. Uh, for Professor Yonda, you know, he was thinking about single leg stance, he was thinking about gait. He wasn't thinking so much about strength and conditioning and fitness or, or even sport. And so, you know, we weren't talking so much about hinge then and things like that. But now, now we learn how important fundamental things like are, are such as are you bending from the hips rather than bending from the waist? And how would we ascertain that? Well, we can look at the squat for a butt wink at the bottom, or we can look at whether they have any conceptualization at all of what a hinge might be, what a waiter's bow or Japanese bow might be. And if they don't, well, like Levitt said, uh, the first treatment is to teach a person to avoid what harms them. Before I treat, I'm going to help them um, uh, learn how to avoid harm in the first place. Maybe if they have better load management and better um, spine sparing habits, um, then they're not going to cause the triggers to become active in the first place. And how does this how does this all play with the and I, and I agree I, I agree with a majority of that and in, in integrating a lot of those things. How does all this play in with some of the uh, I don't want to say recent because it's been around for for a little while, but the recent integration of of pain sciences and even more so because we you alluded to this as well about the the individuality and and the uniqueness uniqueness of each person and building that relationship and the trust and understanding their KPIs, that, that comes down to communication and a relationship that com comes down to a, a good 
back and forth that you have to know with the person because that's also that's also a fundamental piece of of pain science. How, how do you how do you bridge or how do you um, how do you have that middle ground of not pushing too much of of staying away from what hurts them, but also empowering the person to to understand what's going on and, and kind of have that almost emotional interview process. I think, Gene, there's two sides to that. One is uh, reassurance, namely, as far as you said, as far as middle ground. It's like a Buddhist thing. I want to tell people kind of the obvious, that, that we're going to find the sweet spot between not too much and not too little. And any behavioral medicine or behavioral modification expert uh, knows that the key to behavior change is not telling people that they need XYZ and here are the benefits of, of why you should do McKenzie or stabilization or get active or move more. Um, rather, for the threatened individual who, who we're focused on here, uh, the key is, is explaining them the risks of the path that they're on. It's not explaining the benefits of the change. And when it comes to explaining the risks, the elephant in the room for alcoholics, for smokers, for obese people, just as it is for sedentary people, um, is what we want to hammer. So, so I'll explain the risk of atrophy, the risk of rust. I'll explain that the hurt you feel becomes the feeling that you hurt and what that, what that means. How pain is, as it's now termed, um, an output more than an input. How it involves the entire system. What cortisol does, how it lowers your pain threshold. So long before I'm teaching people how to hinge from their hips, long before I'm identifying whether they're a boom and bust individual and they have poor load management or they're just very, very sedentary and inactive, the very first thing I'm going to do is identify if they're at DEFCON 5, what their threat level is. And if they have a misunderstanding of the relationship that, that they have with, with their environment and with pain, then I'm going to begin the process of reconceptualization as the very first thing that I do. I need to attack the desensitization in somebody who's a catastrophizer before I get into load management, before I get into spine hygiene and ergonomics, before I get into stabilization, strengthening, etc. Yeah, I think that the thing that pain science did really prefer our profession is that it, it tied together a lot of disparate schools of thought. Because when you really look at the concepts of neuroscience and neuromodulation and why things work and we really know we really know what things are not doing and, and what assessments and treatments are not measuring and what treatments are not doing rather than what they are. But when when you tie everything back into neuroscience you can see why any any of the techniques out there that are commercial models would work. Greg, how do you bring somebody back? So a lot of patients are still very much in the um, kind of that that bio anatomical model that that's that's all they know that we that's pretty much what everyone mean, is, has known my, forever. You mean, you mean my leg lengths are off right now and I need them to be realigned. Exactly. My leg lengths are off. My back went out. My disc is hurt. Just adjust um, me, Craig. Just adjust me. Exactly. I'm like an adjustment. That that's still probably ninety, if not more, percent of how people think because that that's how they're used to medicine and healthcare and everything they've always been taught has been in that that kind of bio model H how do you start to to bring them towards kind of what you talked about and and 
educating them and having them buy in to all of that. I actually think that we're slowly eroding that, and it's still there, but I think less and less often. I think what's more of an issue and more challenging for probably people like us, and maybe I can learn from you guys, is, is people want a label. What's causing my pain? They want to, and, and that leads them down that MRI road. Uh, or what you're saying, like, oh, it's your leg length inequality. Oh, you have a facet syndrome. Um, you have a rotated vertebrae. Um, the, the, the traction that we get going way back to Gordon Waddell's work and the initial guidelines, the Quebec Task Force, Agency for Healthcare Policy and Research, et cetera, saying that 85% that of back problems are idiopathic, they're nonspecific. I think that that actually, while accurate, is a disservice. And I think that Stu says there's no such thing as nonspecific pain. And of course, he's right. The problem is we don't have robustness in our ability to ferret out what the specific diagnosis is. And so it is N equals one, and it does depend. At the end of the day, Stu may not be able to hang his hat on saying that he's found uh, the diagnosis unless what he means is he's found the trigger, because we can find the provocative movement. We can find the provocative movement by just interviewing the person. They tell us what their activity and tolerances are. I'm sensitive in the morning. I'm worse when I bend forward. I'm worse when I reach overhead. I'm worse when I walk. Um, um, we can confirm it with the assessment and, and check what, what, what is their sensitive, sensitivity profile. But is that the diagnosis? Is, 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 is that equal to what's the pain um, uh, source. I think people who know Ben Kibler's work and know about the kin kinematic chain know that often the pain source, the driver, is silent. You could have uh, poor control of frontal plane hip pelvic motion and you've got an, a patellofemoral tracking problem that is symptomatic. You have triggers in your knee when you, uh, when you jump or land, um, but the problem is actually coming from a silent killer. So um, I think that that's the bigger issue, is patients wanting us to tell them what's, what is the cause of my pain. And I feel almost helpless. I, I feel inferior. Uh, I feel like, like I can't really say with certainty. I'm a skeptic with myself. Um, and so I have to figure out how to motivate them and gain their, their trust while being honest at the same time. And I find that that's a real challenge. I completely agree. I think that's, that's probably the hardest thing is everybody wants a diagnosis. And the reason for that is it actually comes back to behavioral sciences. Um, it's because human brains are cause and effect. We, we need to have a cause for an effect. And it's usually linear. If this, then that. Um, so we're trained like that in, in life and that, that comes down to common sense and that comes down to past experiences. We do our best to try to piece a puzzle together because we, we can't stand, we really, we have to, we have to fit the puzzle pieces together. This is horrible because it's not true. I mean, we live in an era of dynamic systems theory. This is uh, the basis for all of our genetics and computer science and space science, uh, and it's certainly how the body works. It's multi-system dynamic interaction, um, like Carl Valet talks about, like we now know the behavior of a soccer team and the movement of all these players. It's like an ant colony. Um, these things are not reductionist, but, but explaining that to, to the average person, 
Uh, it it's brutal. Doesn't, doesn't, yeah, it's brutal. I, I, you know, I, I hear my patients asking my, my, my associates, and then I see the struggle. I see my associates answering honestly, you know, well, we don't really know. And then all I can hear is Shirley Sarman saying, people want to know what's, what the label is, and we can <laughs> give them the label. And Shirley is so, such a fundamentalist about this, and she's so sure of herself, and I, I love her, but I could, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, that's the struggle, right? That is the struggle. People want that cause and effect, but but as 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 practitioners, as as even even not, even if you're not fully evidence based, if if you're just even a partial of it, you you, you really can't say with, with full confidence what something is because we we really don't know. We we give our best um, best theory, best concept, best information, best evidence. But it, it's just like you said, it, it's it's a constant struggle. And I think those that say otherwise, I really don't know how they can say that. Well, I, I think that there's a lot of rhetoric, too. And, and, and for instance, when Stu t- says there's no such thing as nonspecific, everybody's specific, this is a challenge. We need to learn how to identify the problem in the kinetic chain, to find the, the functional disturbance or, or the source of overload or, or the belief or the attitude that a person has that is contributing, you know, and prioritize them because there's going to be more than one. It's not going to be one thing. So uh, if people think that they're hearing Stu say it's one thing, they're mishearing Stu. And for years, and I bless you guys for getting Stu to talk about pain science. For years, people thought that Stu didn't understand pain science. Stu's wife, Catherine, is a sports psychologist. She is a champion rower at the highest level and a sports psychologist. Stu is, is firmly aware of this. The problem is that, that we have these camps. And a lot of the people in the pain science field, they simply see the bad apples in chiropractic and physical therapy, massage, etc., who are falsely labeling people and saying, oh, this is your problem. Your problem is that you have this faulty pattern or this weak link, when in fact, that's probably trumped by the fact that the person is fragile and feels uh, vulnerable and feels unstable. And then you're telling them, you're giving them a label of instability. Obviously, that's not, that's not going to fly. If I think a person has a poor movement pattern and they're also psychologically feeling that they're frail and they've been told they have a degenerative spine or a torn labrum, the first thing I'm going to do is, is old school. I'm going to explain to them the science about false positives on imaging so that they can begin to kind of reconceptualize. And then once that door is propped open, then I'm going to identify what their triggers are. And then I'm going to start to modulate their triggers so that they feel they have some self-efficacy. At the end of the day, it's got to be about results. And the only way you can gain trust is not by talking. It's by showing, which is what McKenzie taught us. So I find it ludicrous that the pain science people speak like they live in a bubble that, that, that where Robin McKenzie has not entered this, this, this universe. Robin McKenzie changed everything. He operationalized a behavioral medicine approach through physical means, and his labels may be all, all wet, but they're not what was critical. What was critical is he said when a person is pain, is in pain, if they quote unquote threw their back out, if, if you understand anything about this problem, you should be able to help them put their back back in. 
And that metaphor may be inaccurate, but the principle is that if somebody's back is bothering them, if they've gotten sensitized, if you're any good with your hands tied behind your back, you should be able to guide them towards desensitization. Absolutely. I think this is one of the coolest things, Erson, I think you've done a great job of this through through your teaching and your courses is you've been able to integrate all these worlds because you teach pain science, but you also obviously have biomechanics and manual therapy and you integrate all this that makes it, I think, one of the most relevant to practice and easy to buy in for people. Because to me, one of the coolest things to see is somebody coming in um, very sensitized, very emotionally um, alert and just to talk to them and see a glimmer of hope in their eyes and then having them do a motion that they were extremely fear, fearful and guarded of and, and to have support for your words with movement afterwards, um, to me that, that's one of the coolest feelings and one of the best buy-ins and I think that's something you do, uh, one, one of the best in, that I've seen so far. Thanks, Gene. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's anything special about what I do. I mean, I definitely amalgamated, amalgamated a, a whole bunch of different experts. And I, I, you know, it always bothers me too, Craig, when, when pain science uh, experts or pain science gurus, and, and you know, Butler is, is definitely not guilty of this, but when they say, oh, I'm a recovering manual therapist, or, uh, you know, they, they, they'll blog about uh, all these successes, like everyone blogs about successes. And I remember someone reached out to me a while ago, maybe five years ago, uh, when I just started blogging, um, I was only a couple years into blogging, and they said, you know, I'd be more interested about hearing your failures than your successes, because everyone always talks about their successes. And I I got all offended, and I blocked him, and then I, I, I thought, <laughs> but you know what? That, that's a really good point. What, aren't you successful all the time? No, no one is, and that's the I thing. I am, I am. Right, uh, I other am. than G, other than G, yeah. All the time. But anyway, it, it's one of the things, it's, it's how I presented my courses is, I realize that, I mean, I've already gone on this journey, and I'm sure Craig has gone on this journey, and I know you have too, Gene, where you become very attached to assessments and techniques that make you successful, and you confuse the success that you get with these assessments and techniques with the mechanisms being correct. And and one of the things I always say is, you know, we're all experts here in my, in my seminars. We're all experts. We, we all love what we do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. But I think we just have to let go of, of some of the things that we teach and some of the things that we prescribe, uh, or at least the reasons why we say they're working, but everything you're doing is working. It just might not be for the reason why you think. And I think that that's a stark contrast to how it's presented sometimes in the pain science world where they're just calling everyone dinosaurs or, you know, manual therapy just makes someone pass passively reliant on you as a clinician. And, and you know, that that's, that's my biggest message on day one is no matter what I do, I'm only going to put your nervous system and your tissues in a, in a state that you can accept load and, and accept movement threat-free, but it's up to you to keep it. So I think, I think it's all in the presentation, you know? Absolutely. And in my progression, I would love to hear your, your guys take on and, and share your progression as well. As a clinician, my progression was I, I learned a ton. I learned a ton techniques. Um, I've said before, I took a, a you know a year-long manual therapy cert with Jim Meadows um, as a third-year DPT student before I even became, I was, I was a certified manual therapist before I was even a, a licensed physical therapist. So I, I did the manual therapy thing. I, um, I did um, Grimsby manual therapy cert. I, I had like 300 hours of continuing that. I had, I had so much information and so many techniques that I learned. 
And I started, my, my treatment was I, I knew certain techniques and I, sh- I knew certain um, subgroup classifications that certain patients would fall into and the exercises and the techniques to use. And I would use the techniques that I knew worked. And then if they didn't work, then I knew in my head, hey, I had a quote unquote enough of a toolbox, which at this point I hate, that I could fall back on other techniques to use on this person. And as I started to practice more and start to realize was I, I had it absolutely asked backwards is I needed to find out who this person was and what what they were all about. And like Greg said, their their KPIs. And then from there, I can use the, the smallest amount of things that will work on them versus using things that would that throw at them and see what works. So I had to kind of flip it backwards. And, and, and after that, it was a whole different world. What, what about you, Craig, as, as you've practiced, as, as if you think, as if, as you've learned more and, and progress, what has been your evolution of, of care? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I started off, um, well, I went to, I went to chiropractic school, not as a believer in chiropractic and really wanted to practice nutritional medicine and alternative medicine. And then in chiropractic school, this was a time when the Rand Corporation was uh, publishing their findings about uh, the evidence base uh, for manipulation. Um, and so I realized that that uh, chiropractic actually had, had more merits than I realized as a patient of three chiropractors, none of whom uh, uh, impressed me at all. In fact, they all were kind of a turnoff. Um, but when I was in school, uh, I had a classmate who was an athletic trainer, and he started teaching us taping. And then I had a friend who had started chiropractic school before me, and he suggested that I take some soft tissue courses. So I got very into uh, manual therapy and palpation, uh, trigger point work, Travel's work, Chetau, things like that. So I was um, learning a lot about the muscles, which was heresy. Um, it was the, the, the general prevailing idea was that if you take care of the joints, the muscles will be fine. And one thing led to the next. Of course, I, I evolved from thinking about just uh, the soft tissues uh, to learning about the faulty movement patterns from Levitt and Yanda and the functional pathology of the motor system. So really, my current model is really grounded in Levitt and Yanda, namely that, of course, there are muscle imbalances. Of course, this has to do with sedentarism and the inactivity crisis and the fact that, that we're designed to be upright, yet this has been progressively more and more challenged over the last 50 or 60 years until we develop certain adaptations that are putting us on a slippery slope. Um, and then people, of course, develop musculoskeletal pain. Um, so I used to do a lot more soft tissue. Now uh, I teach people the value more of working um, uh, on reactivation and avoiding sedentarism, but I think the harder thing is not the person that everybody's focused on from pain science, these catastrophizers uh, that are, that are, that are uh, have lower pain thresholds. I think the bigger problem is the type A's who go boom and bust. And for me, teaching pacing to a very successful person who's an expert in their field and isn't the typical patient of a physical therapist or chiropractor, but usually goes straight to the orthopedic surgeon and right off the bat gets the injections and then has the surgery. Teaching those people about grit, teaching those people about pacing, about load management, about the fact that they have to train 
so that uh, uh, they can do their weekend warrior activities uh, effectively. Basically, the exos model from pros to average Joes, that to me is almost a harder uh, 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 message than it is even with, and I'm not saying I don't have trouble, but, but even with the basket cases that, that have central sensitization. That's a pretty good progression. What about yours? Well, my mine was very similar to yours, Gene. I mean, I uh, my parents are MDs, so I remember telling them, "Hey, I want to learn spinal manipulation." I had a buddy, um, one of my roommates and best friends in, in PT school, Aaron Perkins. Uh, we he said, "Hey, you know, let's let's become chiropractors. Let's let's be better than PTs. Let's let's learn how to manipulate." I mean, we learned how to, to manipulate in school because like, we had an ortho professor, and at the time we had two semesters of ortho, five credits each. And, you know, way back when, Gene, there was only all the other schools around the area, uh, they only had one semester of ortho with three credits. So we had like an entire semester, five credits of spine, five credits of extremities. And our, our instructor was a, he was a McKenzie, uh, he's a diplomat now, Ron Schenk. Um, and he's been on the board of directors of McKenzie Institute for a while too. And he, you know, so we got a big uh, basis in the spine. We learned manipulation, we learned McKenzie uh, behavioral modification. So I just thought I wanted to take that further because I wanted to fix people like like most manual therapists. So immediately upon graduation, I, I said to my parents, hey, you know, I think I, I want to be a chiropractor. And they said, well, we will disown you. Uh, so you, you think of something else and learn how learn a different way how to manipulate. So uh, someone else told me about Stanley Parsons. They program. wanted you to manipulate, but they didn't want you to become a chiropractor. <laughs> right, right, yes. That remi- that, you know what that reminds me of? I'm sorry to interject. I, I was a, when I was a student, I was at a local public golf course, and I heard these three guys talking about um, uh, chiropractic. And one of them said he hurt his neck. Went to see his orthopedist buddy. His orthopedist said, "Never let a chiropractor do this," and then cracked his neck. <laughs> right, because it's only I'm it's thinking, only dangerous when the chiropractor is, is this? right? Yeah. Let's yeah. see yeah. some. Let's have some. Let me let me say that this stuff works, and it's safe. But don't go see somebody who has thousands of hours of training in it. See me where maybe I took a weekend course. Right. <laughs> That's hilarious. Right. Hey, I'm just glad I'm part of the I'm sorry, not part of the profession that people ask if I believe in it. No one ever asks if I believe in physical therapy. Like chiropractic is some sort of, you know, abstract thing that requires faith for it to exist, you know? Well, I also thought it was a strange thing. I under, I understand all this. I mean, Dr. Levitt had spoken ill of chiropractic and I invited him, uh, this is back in 1984, I invited him to come to, uh, to my college when I was a student. And um, when he came, um, he wanted to sit in our courtyard and just interact with students. He wanted to learn you know, what their thoughts were. Um, and then he wanted to go to radiology and meet with our head of radiology. And then he wanted to meet with our technique professors. And he wanted to ask them how they adjusted sacroiliac because 30 years earlier, they had had debates about sacroiliac and that most adjustments were actually creating hypermobility at the uh, uh, iliolumbar. Um, and, um, you know, he, he realized what Yonda realized that, that and kind of it's how you guys started this off uh, today, um, that we're in a, in a time now where it doesn't really matter what the letters are after your name. What matters is the way that you think. And, and you know, I think Gary Gray and Robin McKenzie uh, have probably had the most influence on the way that we think. 
when, when, I, when I talk about, when I think about your question, Gene, about evolution, you know, Gary Gray is, you know, maybe McKenzie's the foundation, but Gary Gray is the one who, if people were listening to him, we wouldn't be seeing such infatuation with all of this floor exercise today. You know, Gary said, hey, we got people off the tables and we started to do, you know, exercises. Uh, uh, we realized it wasn't just about manual therapy. But, but now, and he's, this, is, this is him 30 years ago, now we realize that we don't have to keep people, we don't have to baby people and keep them on the floor. That we can stand people up and have them working more functionally in all three planes. And, and I love his line, attack success. And, and I've kind of uh, uh, done a riff on that. For me, kind of the philosophy of all of my courses and my practice is, is, is the hardest thing you do well. I want to find the hardest thing that you do well that's related to, to your demands and your capacity shortfall. And that's what we're, where we want to bridge the gap. And I think that that's where the strength coaches and fitness, physical therapists and, and chiro rehab people, I think that's where we all basically um, uh, uh, should be living. We should all be, be giving people stress that they can handle at the limit of their capability. If it's too easy, if on, if on a rating of perceived exertion it's like a three, well, nothing's going to change there. And if it's too hard, if it's a nine, well, well, they're just compensating. They're just hanging on for dear life. And certainly if there's, if there's significant pain, it's not no pain, no gain. So, so we know that we've got to find the hardest thing they do well that's relevant for them. Right, I and think that's, the, that's the key is the relevance, right? That that's 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 something that gets missed a lot, and a, a lot of times we get people get put into protocols and into systems, uh, not business systems, but just 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 the the typical grind. And it's so easy to get caught up in in this kind of in the blinders of day to day work and day to day clinic that you you forget that you need to you need to have the individuality of stress like he talked about. And um, again, some of us, some of us that are in are in social media and, and are in this vacuum, we, we lose sight of how crappy that is sometimes in the world. And um, like Tarison's question about PT and Cairo, again, to allude to the vacuum, I, I was in the vacuum of the opposite. I was always around great chiropractors. Uh, when I was a student, I was, we have a clinic here in D.C., Sport and Spine Rehab. Uh, Jay Greenstein, who's a, who's a chiropractor, an awesome, awesome dude, great clinician, business owner. I, I, I did my rotation there, and I was around PTs and chiros and, and rehab professionals and, and movement-focused and load-focused and doing what's best for the patient and, and building that self-reliance and not interdependence. And so, you know, when I, when I got out more into the world and started to see the, the clash between chiros and PTs, and the political nature of it, and just more more fear based about f afraid of losing versus focusing on how to win. It, it was just blowing my mind. But again, it's I was in the minority. I, I, I had a small taste of it, but that taste to me was 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 the utopia. That that was how it should be versus how things are and were. And real life, and again, that comes back to how do you make it relevant and how do you make it real? And like sometimes social media becomes that outlet for a lot of people as we know, we know how it could be. It's just, how do we make it reality, Erson? Right. Do you guys still want to hear my evolution? 
please. <laughs> you, have, you haven't spoken about that? How, close us out, Earl. Finish us out with your evolution, no, I please. Even I don't even know where it was. Well, anyway, I did, <laughs> I did fellowship. I ended up at uh, Stanley Paris's, and I did a one-year fellowship there. Uh, and in one of the first uh, DPT programs, because I wanted, you know, I wanted to be a doctor of PT. And I remember the, the majority of the participants, I used to have to wear a DPT badge. They would have like, there was an MPT badge and a DPT badge. And then there was just people who were taking the course for Con Ed credit. And I got so much flack, you know, and it's crazy because I've talked about this before in an old interview I did with Ben Fung, where I, I got flack when I was going for my master's from bachelor's PTs. And as soon as I graduated, I went for my doctorate and all the master's and the bachelor's PTs, I got the same flack. Like, you didn't need, you don't need your master's when I, you know, for bachelor's PTs. And like, oh, you don't need your doctorate. Uh, or, or, you know, I, I did a, I did a project and I'm thinking like, dude, don't even pr pretend like your project is like my master's thesis. And then to the master's PTs, I was thinking like, if you had enough credits to get a doctorate, you'd have a doctorate, you know? And, and, uh, I did a, you know, when you're uh, residency and fellowship, cause there was no difference back then. And, uh, kind of got grandfathered into my fellow fellowship and I, and I taught and I treated for years that it was all about pathoanatomy and I'm fixing you. And even way back in my career, right after I finished my fellowship, I got McKenzie certified just because I wanted the credentials. I didn't, I, I even told you the first instructor I had on the first day, I don't even plan on using this. Like that, I might've been more arrogant than Eugene. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if that's possible, but that, that's how I started out, you know? And then I, I seriously doubt it. Right. So I used McKenzie on the people who didn't necessarily respond to my magic hands after 40 visits, you know? <laughs> Right. And then I took Butler's first explained pain course in 2002, and I really kind of changed the way I thought. But at the same time, for maybe the next five years, I I, uh, I taught and I used pain science only for people who I thought were centrally sensitized, as opposed to, you know, where you guys all know where I am now, where I use pain, I say pain science is for everyone, because anyone who's in pain, or even people who aren't in pain, who have some performance issues or mobility issues, they can still use a uh pain science concepts on them because you're, you're still empowering them and changing their behavior and, and reducing kinesiophobia or, or teaching them why maybe they have a lack of mobility because they're just not taking it into their own hands after getting passive care. So that, that's pretty much my evolution in a nutshell. All right. W worth the wait. I like it. it, it it's, uh, <laughs> I just got left the, out. I felt left out. The key, the key points here, I think, is that all of us went through an evolution that we did not stay the same we did not we did not keep going with with the status quo there 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 was an evolution and then i'd like to think that evolution made us better um more 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 depth to our practice and understanding but like like craig said even even at this how long have you been practicing craig uh since 1987. okay so a couple years finally um, <laughs> someone has been practicing longer than me so he's been practicing for a couple of years and still questions himself sometimes on, on certain respects and in, in dealing oh, with patients I and situations. I, I question myself all the time. I tell my patients, I, I show them a, a, a thing about um, success with all the failure that goes first. And the metaphor is Sherlock Holmes. He, he's, he's not right in the beginning. He has a theory and it, it's wrong, but he gets there. And that's where the grit factor comes in. But I, I, I'd like to share my recent failures, if I can. <laughs> oh, we save that for my other podcast, but no, go ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, can, you, can share, you can share one, but save more for my other podcast. 
Well, I mean, I, th <laughs> I think that the biggest mistake, and I'm, I'm, I'm thoroughly guilty of this in my teaching and everything else, besides, you know, a, a, adopting, you know, a pro-posterior pelvic tilt model and then an abdominal hollowing model and then a conscious bracing model, um, you know, all these, I feel, are, 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 you know, parts of my personal evolution and mistakes that I've made. Um, I think the most recent one is about how I coach. And uh, for 99% of my, my career, I have been correcting people. I have been telling people, uh, bring your shoulder back and down, tuck your chin in, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it's only now that I realize how a tennis coach or a basketball coach reverse engineers a drill that's designed to actually create a constraint that allows a person to learn from them, for themselves through the results that they'll get, through the target practice, um, how to correct that fault. Um, that I've discovered the minimal effective dose, which is that it's best if I don't correct, like, like Feldenkrais said, it's best if I let environment be the coach and do it in a playful game style so that they uh, naturally uh, have something to strive towards. And in this way, if we think about not pain science, but neuroscience, motor learning is occurring because the person is figuring it out for themselves from their mistakes and their corrections. Now they're myelinating those synaptic connections. And now it's going to be robust and hold up under stress. Whereas if I tell them and they do it right, it's only going to persist in practice. And it's not, like Alan Iverson said, it's, it's not about practice. We're talking about practice. Practice isn't the game. Practice isn't life. And this has been one of the bigger mythologies that I think has affected all of us. The more we learn, like, like you were saying, Urson, the, the more we fall in love with these techniques, we follow these protocols, um, uh, it, it becomes a seduction and we forget about the person and what their goals are and what the goal is, which is that they become more robust and more functional. Right. I bet. It's one of my biggest shortcomings. Full circle, Urson. Right. Full circle. Back to functional. Right. You like that? I like it. <laughs> well done. Well done. Finish it out, Urson. Well, uh, <laughs> I was just about to say it's one of my biggest shortcomings. I still don't like asking patients, what are your goals? Because like, I just assume that they tell me in my history. I don't like asking it as like a open-ended question, but I get around to it when I ask them about their function or what they're unable to do. And that's one of my, I don't know why, I just, I've never liked that as, a, as like this flat-ended question, you know? Um, I don't know why. It's just something I have to work on. Do you, do you ask them what they want to accomplish? Uh, yeah, and, 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 yes, I do. What are they unable to do? What, what, what would you like to be able to do? Um, I guess I just don't ask it, um, it, it in a way that like it's suggested. But yeah, I mean, I, I get around to it. It's not because I think I know what's best for them. I think most people don't have goals. That's the thing. Like most people don't think about goals right. in, in everyday life. I just want to feel better. Yeah. But that's not good enough for us because we, we have to get paid by insurance. We have to have goals for notes. Like we, we have to hit certain things because we have to have it, not because of how the person thinks and actually live their real life and integrate information and process information. That That's like we need it. 
especially as students, like we have to learn these things. We have to learn how to set goals because that's what our EMR documentation requires, you know, but that that's an entirely different conversation for a whole other hour of stuff. I think the why that they're there is is crucial, though. Really, really spending the time to unmask what their uh, motivation is and and what's driven them. Because most people we know, most people accept discomfort. Most people self-manage with pain. The people we're we're seeing are already the people that are more concerned about their problem, and. And what I strive to find out is, is really what their concern is, and then what their expectation is. Right. So if they, if they um, are expecting adjustments or manual therapy, um, I need to know that. If their expectation is that, um, that they're not going to get better in six months, that's really important to me. If, if I find that they're miserable um, and that they're not expecting to get better, I know that I better be on my A game. <laughs> in contrast, somebody who's expecting to get better, I could actually do, uh, I go on autopilot and they're going to get better because they think they're going to get better. Well, that might be the be- better question then that I think would probably put a lot of people on their ass is what are your expectations? Not what are your goals? What do you ex- what do you expect? What do you genuinely want to accomplish? And um, then you can meet them there. You know, right. there, there's no, there's no guessing. Yeah, I, I think, though, that um, one of the things that if you spend a decent amount of time with any of your interviews or your, your histories is it's been identified that most clinicians within, you know, two to three minutes can identify whether or not they're going to have a hard time with this patient. <laughs> right. Definitely. Start exhibiting all the uh, fear avoidance behaviors and a lot of kinesiophobia. Um, and they've been told just they've been filled with thought viruses then you might think this is going to be a tough patient. And, and I like to surprise myself, but a lot of times it's, um, it tends to be tough. So well, we have our own, we have our own comfort zones. We know what we're good at. We know what we like to treat and the type of people we like to deal with because as professional as we are and as trained as we are, we're still humans and we were naturally attracted towards other certain types of human beings, not, not, sexually but in terms of relationship wise and uh, when those people come around it's just naturally easier to, to treat them but when somebody comes around that challenges a lot of the ways that you deal usually go about of connecting with another human being it becomes uh, you have to you have to really rely on um, other aspects and and skill set of communication which comes back down to everything we talked about before about building that relationship and, and pain science and making it relevant to the person, even though you might be having trouble connecting on different levels. Right. Well, I think I, one of the things that Greg said getting best. Getting their trust and getting the buy-in is, is I think what you just said, uh, Gene, is one of the missing pieces that um, is a technique in and of itself, like motivational interviewing. But, but um, getting the buy-in, getting the trust, I think comes from empathy, comes from what we started off talking about, which is uh, when we ask about function, we're trying to find out what's meaningful to the individual. And I really want to give them a forum to tell me what their their concerns are. I mean, some people, it's not their pain, it's that they have other peers that have had something similar, and then it wound up turning into an albatross. So everybody's different. Some, some people, it's not that they have a lot of pain. It's just that they think that this is going to mushroom cloud on them. 
So they're fearing the future, let's say, or they're feeling some decline in their ability to do the things that are important to them that they value. Uh, I don't know how uh, to do that quickly. I find I have to sit with people and really let them tell, tell their story. Um, and, and like Gene, you were saying, you avoid open-ended question about goals. That, that makes sense to me. On the other hand, um, I don't want to steer them too much. I want to let them uh, vocalize what they're feeling, what their expectations are, what their preconceived ideas are. I learn so much by letting them air it out. Yeah, I, I think letting people talk and, and having that that comfortable environment. But the, I mean that to let people air it out and to the point where it's it's authentic, deep down levels. I mean that takes trust and and there's a lot of a lot of research coming out about trust. And um, I think Amy Cuddy from Harvard has has two real points about what what builds what builds trust. And it happens almost instantly and somebody sees you. And, and if you haven't read that or watched her TED talk, I, I really recommend. Uh, checking out Amy Cuddy, C-U-D-D-Y, and she talks about all this, but it, it can happen fairly quickly. It doesn't have to be over day. Sometimes it is, depending on the person's history, but it doesn't have to be that way. But I totally agree with you, Craig. Yeah, I think presentations and, and that first visit is, is really, really important. And, you know, setting the stage and, and making your clinic and your staff, if you even have it, I don't have staff anymore, but... Um, you know, just, right? the first, the first <laughs> impressions are everything. I, I really, that's one of my favorite things is, is the setting the stage for that patient and making them feel welcome. All right. So let's close it out, Craig. Uh, I see, like, like we said in the beginning, we see your stuff all the time. Um, you look like you have a pretty active Facebook group and, and teaching courses. Where, where can people find you? What do you have going on if they're interested in, in following up on stuff from the podcast? Where, where can they uh, email or tweet or whatever? And obviously any other courses you have going on where they can find you. Um, this weekend I'm teaching an extremities program in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, I have a course coming up in Spain next month, uh, something at UCLA next month. So uh, information's on my blog, craigliebenson.com. Um, um, a lot of stuff from my office is on Instagram at, at uh, uh, C. Liebenson. Um, I'm going to follow you right now. I'm on Twitter at Craig Liebenson, mostly sharing things from sports scientists um, uh, who pretty much don't go to Facebook, and I find uh, a lot of the most relevant stuff right now is coming from the sports scientists. Um, so the, the Twitter is really my, my, my ability to uh, kind of share what uh, people are, are experiencing at conferences, like a groin conference or a tendinopathy conference, maybe it's work from Jill Cook, uh, that may not even find its way into publication for a year or two. Um, so the, the Twitter is, is, is a good place for that also. Got it. Well, I just followed you on Instagram, so uh, I'll be I'll be keeping up on, on the stuff you got going on, C. Liebenson, and um, Twitter as well. We'll put all the stuff on our uh, UpDoc Media podcast page, all your contact info, the website, and your social media contacts. So if anybody wants to reach out, um, they'll, be, they'll be able to fairly easily. And th thanks for joining. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's, it's been, I think we covered... Uh, for an hour, I think it was densely packed with a lot of really, really actionable stuff. Must have been my um, super easy questions. 
<laughs> I'm pretty I, sure I, it was his answers, Urson. Oh, okay. I hope I hope more more actionable than dense. <laughs> Den- densely actionable. Right. So that, that's a lot of action per square foot or, or per oh, minute of, of convo. But I thought we want the minimum effective dose. <laughs> right. Not for this. What's Not the, for this. Okay. What's the minimum so effective that. dose? Uh, give up something you're attached to this week. Coffee? <laughs> no, I meant like Blasphemy. a. I meant like Blasphemy. a treatment. A treatment. <laughs> oh, try, treatment. try to see yeah, how, how everyone treatment. everyone still is probably going to get better if you give up one of your go-to treatments. Never. <laughs> oh boy. Well, Never coffee. I want uh, to go crazy. I didn't say give up coffee. I'm have coffee right now. <laughs> Fair enough. I I think I think one of the the take homes for me is when you mentioned Urson. Um, that we shouldn't be a victims of, of protocols, and that that really is the heart and soul of the functional approach. That is about the individual, um, and when we make it about our program instead of their profile, um, I think we lose it. And I think that that sadly, the business end of our fields are driving people to take all of these seminars that are teaching people more about the programs and the methods and less about the principles and the individual. So. So I love hearing you say what you said about protocols, and I think that uh, that we need to learn how things are connected. But but it's really not that simple that you just go from I found this dysfunction and here's the corrective. It, it, it's going to be uh, a far more um, uh, subtle process, and in order to find that minimum effective dose, it, it's going to have to be a more individualized approach. It can't be a cookie cutter. Absolutely. Now, now, final, 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 final question. How, um, how, how glorious is Stu's mustache in real life? Oh my God. You haven't seen him? No, we, we had him on the podcast. I've never met him though. You haven't only met in, him? Only in videos. No, I haven't attended, only, his, yeah. I haven't attended a seminar his, yet. His, his mustache has, uh, gained a new glory since he temporarily shaved it off by, by, for some unknown reason did it, it, did it just come back shaved, the next day he shaved, he <laughs> like shaved the Santa Claus off. he shaved it off somehow I saw there was a picture of him and I don't think he knew why he shaved it off but the second <laughs> he shaved it off he realized it was a mistake this is a mistake I think he said on our podcast that his wife hate doesn't he say that his wife doesn't like it <laughs> yeah he said something but it was, it was definitely like I imagined when he tries to shave that mustache it's like that scene in Superman when the, they try to sneak needles in him at the hospital right, and the, all the breaking. needles start breaking. Right. Like if he's trying to use trimmers, they just break in half. If he's trying to use an electric clipper, the power just goes out in the house. Like he, he just breaks everything yeah. trying to shave that. Gene, I hope I see you in Buffalo. Um, Wait, I'm in be, Buffalo. Uh, I hope to see Gene in Buffalo though too. <laughs> well, I'll be in Buffalo and... and okay, so Gene has to come time, visit. At a later time, I'll share a story with you about when Stu met Vlad in Buffalo. All right. Well, okay. when are you in Buffalo again? Uh, I don't know, April or something like that. Okay, that might be doable. That might be doable. As long as I am here and not somewhere else, and as long as it's not my wife's birthday, which is in April. <laughs> just, just cancel everything, including her birthday. It'll be okay. Right. Sure. I just cancel my seminar and her birthday. It's priorities. <laughs> All about priorities. That's, that's worse than Stu's shaving his mustache. <laughs> True. Urson had a nice run. Rest in peace. Right. 
All right. All right. Well, Craig, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was an awesome thank conversation, you. and uh, I know I know I can speak for Urson and probably everyone listening that we, we would love to have you back and kind of delve even in, in more depth into some of the stuff that we talked about. Yeah, we only scratch wow. the surface. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. You guys are 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 remarkable. The questions that you guys asked, I think, <clears throat> like you say, we're in a bubble, but. Um, uh, I think that you might be having more impact than you realize. I think that 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 the larger fields are starting to to get it. There is hope. We can always yeah, add yeah. that there is hope. Yep. All right. Thank you guys very very much. Thanks, All Craig. Right. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for tuning in to Therapy Insiders. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Craig Liebenson. Obviously, we covered a ton and went after really what, what function is, how it's integrated, and the, the progression of approaches that we each had in figuring that out. And I hope you've had similar experiences, and I'm sure you have similar stories to share. Please tweet at us, email, contact. Let us know your progression, your stories of evolution as a clinician, and, and even your mindset, even if it's not purely as a clinician, how you approach certain conversations and certain topics because, as we mentioned, they're pretty tough when people ask you direct questions about what's going on with them. And sometimes your best answer, actually, oftentimes is we really don't know with much certainty. So the best you can give them is comfort in the process. So, again, tweet at us at Therapy Insiders, at the OMPT, at Joe, at Joe DPT, and, of course, at UpDoc. Media. Look forward to seeing your stories, what you have to tell us and share. If you want to email, email gene at updocmedia, and I'll be happy to share some of the stories through our Facebook page, updocmedia, and our other social media channels. So as always, thank you for listening. We'll catch you again next week on Therapy Insiders Podcast from Updoc Media.